Hear these words. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me just click here. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's children said, Amen. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, I contend that the cry of black power is at bottom a reaction to the reluctance of white power to make the kind of changes necessary to make justice a reality for the Negro. 
I think that we've got to see that a ride is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. That was in 1966. Things haven't changed very much, have they? The other voice, as everything was going on this week, I went to was Abraham Lincoln from his speech in 1858. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction or its advocates that will push it forward till it shall become lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. As I heard voices this past two weeks, I also remember the three general rules that John Wesley gave the early Methodists in their groups and as the late Bishop Reuben Job condensed them, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. And of course, the last voice which still plays in my head is the voice of George Floyd. I can't breathe. I've preached on white privilege before and racism. I did that several years ago and when I was helping, at that time, probationary members working towards their ordination in the United Methodist Church, I was co-leading the group, and we had someone come in to do dismantling white privilege seminar. And after the course of those meetings together on that topic, we were all challenged to preach a sermon on white privilege and racism. I crafted that sermon around the time that we would celebrate, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So as I crafted it, I had a church that I was serving that had several services, and the first service was a, a casual service in the evening on a Saturday. About 10 people in place, I, I preached the sermon, and I was coming down, and a gentleman was coming forward up the aisle, and he said, Pastor, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, Sure. Everyone else had left by this point, and he began to say, Pastor, I didn't like that sermon at all. Do you realize who you're talking about, who you're holding up as an example? Do you realize how corrupt the King family is? They cheat our government out of taxes. You're talking about our privilege. They're living a privileged life, too. And then he invoked the name of my father, a former pastor in the United Methodist Church, retired. He apparently heard my father speak on this before. And the man said to me, I'll tell you what I told your father. And then he pointed his finger and he said, give it a rest. And he walked away. I stood there for a little while, really not knowing what to do or what to say. First thing I did was made sure that he had left, and then next thing I locked the building and took some deep breaths. 
I'd never had a reaction to one of my sermons that way before. But I was very aware of what I was preaching on. And I am today, after the two weeks our country has been through talking about racism, seeing the images of George Floyd and the protests, I've also heard the voices of people who say they feel awful and want a positive change. But I've also heard them say they feel powerless to help or they're not even sure where to start. I'm hoping that you'll hear what God has put on my heart today from the scripture that you heard. Regardless of whether you fall into the category of feeling powerless or not knowing where to start, I pray that you'll hear these words today. I mentioned voices and all the voices that I've heard, it got to the point where my head and my heart hurt. I decided to go to another voice that I've been listening to for an awful long time, the voice of Jesus. I remember his words to all of us, and I can hear his voice saying that there are two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' clarity in mission and ministry was to seek out the marginalized, to express the love of God and forgiveness and mercy and grace to all without qualifying whether they were worthy of it or not. He never hesitated. Regardless of what region they came from or what language they spoke, what disabilities they had, or what color their skin was. His ministry was unapologetic in sharing God's love for all people. On this Peace with Justice Sunday, we are reminded that one of the things we are called to commit ourselves to as United Methodists is fighting for the rights of men, women, children, youth, young adults, the aging, and people with disabilities, and people of color to improve the quality of life, to fight for justice, for rights, and dignity of all people. Jesus did that every day of his life, every moment of his ministry. No place in scripture is this more evident than with Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. Scripture tells us one day Jesus and his disciples were traveling and they were going from Jerusalem to Galilee up in the northeast corner of Israel. Normally Jews took an indirect route and a detour on this trip so they could avoid the region called Samaria. The Samaritans hated the Jews and the feeling was mutual. The hatred was, if you will, all in the family Both Jews and Samaritans claimed Abraham as their ancestor, but where Jews had followed what they deemed the proper interpretation of commandments by keeping themselves racially pure, by not marrying people they considered non-Jews, the Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with others, so that the Jews often called them mixed breed. Why did Jesus lead the disciples through Samaria? I mean, verse 4 tells us that Jesus needed to pass through Samaria. I have no doubt that this decision to go that way was done out of love. Jesus could not bear to write them off as many of his fellow Jews did. As they walked in the heat of that day, 
They came to the famous landmark of Jacob's well. Jesus rested at the well while his disciples went into town to the village of Sychar to obtain food. Verse 7 tells us that a woman came to draw water at the well. It was extremely unusual for a woman to be drawing water at this time of day. It was 12 noon. The well wasn't just a place to draw water. It was the local place to meet and have conversation. But that usually happened very early in the morning when the women would meet there. Something about why this woman did not draw water when other people did was telling to Jesus. Immediately she could tell Jesus was a Jew by what he was wearing. She probably expected him to move aside or even ignore her. But her amazement came when he said, could you give me a drink? Who is this guy? Who is this guy he thinks he's a pure Jerusalem Jew that he's talking to me? Why is he doing that? Is he trying to bait me? She was struggling to account for why this guy was making the most shocking interracial, intercultural first move. After all, most Jews would not drink from a cup that a Samaritan hands had touched. In verse 9, she says, in effect, hey, what's with you? Don't you know that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Again, this was bait for an argument about Jews and Samaritan differences. But Jesus would not take the bait. In verse 10, he switches the subject to the mysterious topic of living water. He said, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for water, living water. She thought it was rather foolish to talk about living water here, right? With a man, he didn't even have a bucket. But Jesus then touches a point of brokenness in her life. He says, go get your husband and then come talk to me. But I'm not married, she said. That's right, said Jesus. But you've been married lots of times and now you're living with a man who's not even your husband. These words must have cut her to pieces. But they were spoken with incredible gentleness. Desperately, she tried to switch back to a discussion between the Samaritans and the Jews' differences. Our people believe it is proper to worship here on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews say that the only right place is in Jerusalem. Again, Jesus refused to take the bait of that conversation. He came to break down human-built walls and reconcile divided and outcast people to God and to each other. To do that, a bridge of reconciliation was needed. In verse 21, Jesus moved the conversation to what real worship is. The day is coming and even now is here when real worship won't depend on where you are, but what is in your mind and your heart. Real worship is a matter of spirit and truth. Was that a bit over her head? Sometimes it's a bit over ours, isn't it? 
Maybe it was over her head. Maybe she suspected who this Jesus character was. Who this guy was asking for water who didn't even have a bucket. Maybe she was going to this time give him the bait one more time because she was so moved by his lack of judgment passed on to her and the promise of the spirit and truth. So she says this. Well, one of these days the Messiah will come and he will show us which ones are right, you Jews or we Samaritans. Then the shocker, right? Woman, if you knew who you were talking to, I am he. This was the only time before the week of Jesus' trial and execution that Jesus openly identified himself as the Messiah, as God's son. Jesus made this awesome revelation, not to some high priest, not to the Sadducees or the Pharisees, but to an outcast in a community. And a double outcast at that, if you will. She was part of an outcast people, the Samaritans, but she was also cast out by her own people. People hurt people. But not this guy, not this one that was talking to her. Verse 28 tells us that she was so shocked that she ran off, not taking water with her, but leaving her bucket behind. That would be like getting some wonderful and awesome news and leaving your credit or debit card or even your wallet in the grocery store as you ran out. She ran into the village and told everyone that she had met a Jewish man at the well who had this prophetic power. Could this be the Messiah? They listened to this outcast, this double outcast. Can you imagine seeing this woman's face if you're in town and she's coming running back in? She's beaming with this transformation on her face from being a humiliated outcast to be a confident herald, a messenger of the Messiah. And because of her witness, many came to know this guy at the well. They found in him no proud racial superiority, no condescending prejudice. He drank water from their bucket. He held their glasses. He drank from the cup. He ate with them. And they listened to his message. And their hearts burned with excitement that only truth, dripping with the Holy Spirit, can bring. For the first time in any Samaritan's memory, Jews were invited to be their guests. Jesus and the disciples spent two days there. And many Samaritans bowed and jumped and danced in worshiping the God they shared in common with this man, whom they now came to know as Jesus, the Messiah. After a while, they forgot that they were Jews and Samaritans. They were just children of God who had met the Savior of the world. Let me just add a a footnote to this story. Later, perhaps a year and a half later, following Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, 
and ascension, there was a period of persecution of the Christians and it broke out in Jerusalem. Many Christians had to flee the city. Guess where many of them went? Samaria. That was a place that the Jewish persecutors were not eager to go at all. Acts 8 tells us that a revival broke out in Samaria. Why were Christian Jews welcome there? Because one day Jesus had come by there and met a woman at the well. I want you to notice two things which may help us today in our relationship with our siblings of color. First, Jesus was willing to go to Samaritan turf and find common ground. He ventured into foreign territory and met someone different among a common need, water, both liquid and the living kind. As long as we are content to sit tight in our segregated suburbs, not much progress will happen. I'm sharing the following idea for the first time with you all today. Suppose that we developed a Bible study and we were to decide to exchange teachers for a month with a class, let's say, from our siblings at Bethel AME in Scranton. And then the two classes were to have lunch at the end of the month. Can you imagine the creative things that can happen when people of God get together? Jesus was willing to cross cultural and racial boundaries. The question is, are we willing to be part of an interracial Bible study and sharing group in an unfamiliar part of town to us? Are we willing to labor in a low-income section of the city with an interracial work crew to build a habitat home? Anytime we are willing to go to someone else's turf in the name of Jesus, ripples of conciliation begin to roll down like waters. That's when liquid water rolling down turns into living water. Here's the second thing I want you to hear today. Jesus refused to let his culture interfere or dictate God's truth. Nowhere in the Bible were Jews taught to hate Samaritans. The systemic sin of everyday human beings poisoned by racism had taught that. Jesus refused to buy into any Jewish traditions that did not have solidness in backing in Scripture. In a book of letters to Dr. King entitled Dear Dr. King, edited by Jan Colbert and Anne McMillan Harris, children wrote letters to the civil rights leader whom they had never met. A 10-year-old wrote, Dear Dr. King, we were traveling to New Orleans for a Mardi Gras and we got lost. My grandfather said, let's go out of this Negro neighborhood. I said to him, Grandpa, they are people just like us. My grandfather said, no, they're not. They will shoot us. That made me sad. Signed, Love, Allison. Maybe Allison sensed that most people in most neighborhoods are more motivated to help rather than to hurt. But her grandfather was teaching her, even without trying, out of a white privilege that he likely didn't even know he had. It was no accident that in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, it wasn't just some guy 
but some despised Samaritan helping a wounded Jew. We need to refuse to go along with cultural traditions that don't square with the inclusive mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. Like limiting our social circle to one race, like evaluating a school by its racial composition, like treating whites as more desirable neighbors or business partners than black people. Like supposing that all people of any particular race like the same worship style. We must learn to think of ourselves as disciples of Jesus who happen to be white or black and not the other way around. Often at the end of my messages, I either say, so what? So what does this mean for us? So as we look together, I'm just trying to figure out my slide here and I apologize. So the so what today will be just a little bit different. I encourage you right now, if you don't, to get a pen and a piece of paper as I share with you some of the challenges that I'm offering you today. You're getting some homework, if you will. And I'm asking you to covenant with me to do five things to help end racism. The first one is admitting you have a race. I actually said the other day to myself, I'm a white man. I said it out loud, not inside my head. And you know, it took me by surprise. Not that I said it, but I heard myself say it out loud. I've lived my life of white privilege knowing what I am as my race, but never acknowledged my race out loud or to other people. From that point, we then have to admit that racism exists and be active in taking notice about how other people are treated. The second thing we need to do is listed there is listen. Listen to our siblings of color. Listen to their stories. Listen to and honor what they are experiencing or have experienced. If they tell you something about what a white person has said to them or done to them and that it's offensive, don't get defensive. If they are outraged, honor their outrage. Pay attention to their hurt, their hope that you will be different. Try to imagine experiencing what they describe from their point of view, not yours. And don't impose your views on them or blame them for racism. Third, and I mean this in all seriousness, read. Read novels by our siblings of color. Read books by siblings of color about racism and how we can all find ways to be more inclusive. Two that are on my list for this summer are Ibram Kendi's new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, the other is a book called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. If you're looking for the experience of a black woman and her perspective, I would recommend to you Angelo Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here. As you read, educate yourself about race and racism in our country. Study the differences between racism and prejudice and discrimination. 
I want to offer you the fourth challenge here, but I want to say this as a cautionary tale, that you need to do the first three before you can jump into this fourth challenge. If you don't complete the first three, you will miss key learnings in your own life. The fourth challenge is broadening your experience. Learn about other cultures. Spend time not asking questions, but being with people, listening to people, hearing them. Friends, this is about relationships. Make some new friends. Get to know people of different cultures. Spend time at events with music, food, theater that are led by and drawn from experience of our siblings of color. And this last one, the fifth one, is important as well. The fifth and final challenge is to take action. Always confront racism. Always confront ignorance. Always confront inappropriate behavior and language when you see it, when you hear it, when you read it, and when you experience it. Practice civility, but be direct when you confront racism. Be visible in the fight at work, in your community, with your children, with your grandchildren. In 1963, eight clergy, eight white clergy from Alabama, including two United Methodist bishops, wrote a letter to Dr. King about how he was fighting racism. Their solution? To stop doing what you're doing and let the courts handle the situation and cease demonstrating. Dr. King's response was what is now called the letter from a Birmingham jail. It essentially was a letter to the editor of the paper directed at those clergy and the world. Let me just share some of the Dr. King's words towards the end of the letter. He says, the contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. I hope the church as a whole will never, will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are presently misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with the destiny of America. As we prepare to close this, let me ask you questions on this Peace with Justice Sunday. The same questions that Dr. King asked in 1965. He asked, how long will it take? How long will prejudice blind the visions of people, darken their understanding, and drive bright-eyed wisdom from her sacred throne? When will wounded justice lying prostrate on the streets pause and communities be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men? How long will justice be crucified and truth bear it? How long? Not long. 
because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long because the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends toward justice. So shall we reach out along that arc of the moral universe as it bends towards justice, even as we prepare our hearts and minds this morning to pray. Will you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer?